Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Sasha Plavsic, the founder and chief creative officer of Ilya Cosmetics. Welcome, Sasha. Thank you for having me. So, Sasha, tell us a little bit about starting your clean beauty brand back in 2011. Yes. So it was a happy accident. I would say that I was at a point in my life where I had left the guy, left the job, and was really searching for something new. And I didn't quite know what it was, but I hadn't been home in 12 years. So and where's home? Home is Vancouver, Canada. And I'd, I'd moved around the world. I'd lived in London. I'd lived in New York. And then I was in the Orange County area where a relationship had brought me. And yeah, I just, it was, it was the recession. So I think this was, I can't even remember now, 08, 09? Yeah. So something I, like that. Something <laughs> like that. We all want to forget it. But I ended up finishing a freelance gig at Urban Decay Cosmetics, which was an amazing experience with great people. Um, but I felt lost. And so I had the opportunity to go home. And on my 30th birthday, around that time, I, I moved back home. And during that time, it's when I started reconnecting with my mom, who was really aware of what we were putting on our bodies and environmental toxins because my brother as a kid was very sick. So I was able to grow up with that knowledge, but more so really have that brought upon me during this time that I was home. And I realized that what she was telling me was totally true. When I started looking online, most of the ingredients in my products were not necessarily what they were claiming to be. Not only that, certain ingredients would be toxic and cause hormone disruption. So that's when I realized that I needed to start looking for something cleaner to put on my skin. And at the time, it wasn't actually clean. It was more organic and natural. So I'd go to Whole Foods. I'd go to other retailers. And I felt there was a huge gap in the market. This probably was in 2009. And that anything that was natural was more in the hippie direction or it was marketed towards a different demographic. I didn't feel that anything was speaking to me as a brand. And so I decided to take my favorite cherry tinted chapstick and download a PDF on how to make lipstick and start, start. Will you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, a lot of um, clean cosmetics founders talk about that today, you know, that, you know, what they saw in Whole Foods or what they saw in, you know, traditional retail environments when they were called clean or organic or natural, they didn't have the payoff. They didn't have, they didn't feel like prestige color cosmetics. Um, how did you think you could solve that? Initially, I wanted to be able to create a product that was more natural and organic. The payoff was something that was important, but for our brand specifically, we are more of a wash of color. And I think what I was trying to solve was to be able to create a brand that would be able to give a woman just the amount of, right amount of makeup that she would need without overdoing it. And then from a standpoint in the messaging, uh, I wanted it to be as natural and as clean as possible. I also learned, though, after a few years of trying to do this, that natural and organic doesn't necessarily mean better for the skin. And there can be a lot of ingredients inside that in a natural organic product that can actually make your skin worse. I used to suffer from acne, and there are ingredients like coconut oil, which we have in a couple of our products, but I realized if I was, as I was adding it to other ones, it was starting to make me break out. So it was a real learning curve, even just in the first few years of the brand, in figuring out how to formulate for this category. 
So when do you think that conversation changed, you know, from that natural conversation or organic conversation to this clean conversation that we're having now? Probably about five years ago. I so what say. happened? I think that it's funny because I, I was in the moment and I really, the first five years of this brand were very creative and I got to explore because there was nobody really in the market. So there was a lot of the time to actually experiment and through trial and error learn what would work and learn what would not work. And at that time, I realized I was also already using synthetics, of which some people would say to me, hey, your brand's not totally natural. It's not totally organic. And I would almost feel bad in thinking that, yeah, you're right. Like, what am I? I don't really know what I am. And then some other brands started popping up where they were using a hybrid of natural and synthetic and making sure that the ingredients were efficacious and that they were safe. And we were already on that bandwagon. So that's when I really realized, okay, you know what? I'm gonna embrace some of these safe synthetic ingredients and not only gonna do that, I'm also going to make sure that they have skin healing benefits to them and incorporate skincare-based ingredients into our products. And that's when the brand really started to change. So talk a little bit about that, that skincare piece, because, you know, the clean conversation in skincare, we've been talking about a lot, you know, I mean, probably since 2008, you know, brands like Tatcha or Drunk Elephant really kind of came out of the gate and really um, made traditional retailers and traditional brands take notice. Color has taken a little bit more time. Why do you think that is? Color has definitely taken longer. I think you're right. Skincare came first. Hair also came out of the gate in the last couple of years, and now we're seeing color. I believe that the consumer wasn't ready. I also think that the technology wasn't there. I went to some of these labs back in 2009, 2010, and they said to me, you're crazy. We're not going to be able to do this. This isn't going to work. And eventually I found a chemist who wanted to be crazy with me to make that happen. And it just took time. There was new ingredients that we were able to work with in the last few years, different technologies, also being okay again and letting go of some of that natural and organic piece. Color is very different, though. You're, you're not just working with baseline ingredients there. You're working with pigment and you're working with many different shades. So there is quite a challenge to getting that formula to be the way that you'd want it to be from a performance standpoint where it can last and you see that it lasts. With skincare, you don't see it on your skin in the same way. Do you think that because you had those skincare benefits, you were able to translate maybe compared to other color cosmetic brands in the market right now that claim to be clean? That's a good question. I think I did it for my own personal reasons initially. And to me, it just made sense because I was already using a lot of skincare and to have the two combined together also made sense for me because many of our products are multi-use, multi-use, multi-purpose. So I think it probably makes it easier for a customer to transition that way. But at the end of the day, she still needs her product to work and she needs to know that it's going to last. So the last couple of years, Sasha, have been pretty um, fervent for you. You know, you raised two rounds of capital in 2018, and then at the beginning of this year, you've gone into plenty of other categories, and I've heard um, some pretty pretty substantial number numbers at Sephora. So talk about when that all changed, when it started accelerating, and why. It started changing when we started changing our formulas. Um, And I actually, I brought on Linda Berkowitz, who's our CEO, back in 2016. She was consulting with us for a couple months, and she was very expensive. (laughs) And I realized that I really enjoyed working with her. She was the president of Too Faced. She'd been at Bobby Brown, Paracone, and had tremendous experience in working with Sephora. 
and she tested all of our products and she said, you know, I think you're a complexion brand. And we were at this time doing roughly 60 to 70% of our sales in lip. And I said to her, I don't think you're right. (laughs) And she was, because in the end, we decided that we were going to refurbish some of our complexion items. And with that in mind, I wanted to make the most amazing foundation that didn't fail foundation. It needed to look like liquid skin. Uh, It needed to have amazing skincare benefits. And that took roughly another year or two to make. And when we came out with that product, the whole brand completely switched because the performance was there, the quality of the product. um, It was something that everybody really wanted and it definitely put us on the map. How do you think that compared to what was happening in the landscape and in the market? Because that was also around the time that, you know, 40 shade standards were coming out that were much more maybe difficult to enter uh, for an indie brand. Um, But here you are, you had that complexion element, but you also had the clean element. So how do you think that all played together in the larger landscape? It played together a bit rough in the beginning because we were smaller and because we weren't funded, we were not able to launch 40 Shades, nor would I actually ever want to launch 40 Shades unless unless I'm launching a full coverage foundation. Many of our formulas are light to medium buildable, meaning you can get a lot of flex. And even with what we just launched yesterday with our Super Serum Skin Tint, SPF 40, we've got an 18 shade lineup. That's the same as the True Skin Serum Foundation. And I believe you can cover a lot of ground. What was really important at that time was being able to introduce a product to the market that had makeup and skincare mixed together and telling that customer, hey, this product is clean, it has these beneficial ingredients, and it also works. Give it a try. And then and then it's word of mouth and people putting it out there. So what happened at Sephora? Obviously, Linda had quite a bit of experience there. Um, and, you know, I've heard you're very productive at Sephora and, you know, you were just expanded space there. So was it cast education? Was it training? Was it samples? Like what really fueled getting it into the right people's hands? Timing. I think it was timing. I think that the customer had been experimenting with clean skin care hair care, and she started dipping her toe into makeup. Uh, that So the True Skin Serum Foundation was one of the products that put us on the map, but complexion is hard to capture people. It's you know something that they're very loyal to, and it can take time to pull them over. What we also launched that year was our Limitless Lash Mascara, and that is really what put us on the map, and I believe what put confidence in people to be able to step over to the other side, so to speak, or to be able to start incorporating clean makeup ingredients into their daily routine with their other favorites. What about um, Lip Today? You know, when you think about it, I mean, I always thought of Ilya as a lip brand as well. You know, it had such a great range of colors. What percentage of business does lip account for today versus complexion? It has dropped significantly. (laughs) Uh, Complexion is definitely a lot stronger, as is our eye category, which was non-existent. Um, when Linda came on board. I think that lip is a great entryway to the brand. And percentage-wise, I think it's gone from like 60 to 15. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely dropped. And that's not uncommon if you're growing in complexion. But what really took over for us was our mascara. And that one, actually, we didn't do any marketing around because we didn't have marketing till recently. It was all word of mouth. And to me, it's one of the greatest 
gateways into a brand because it's a product that everybody can try. It's not shade specific. And everybody's also looking for a great mascara. If it's clean and it works, it's a huge bonus. Why would you not want to give it a shot? So talk about taking that funding in 2018 and then most recently in 2020 in January. You were able to really spend time on product formulations, on marketing, on creating your executive team before you jumped into private equity backing and and VC funding. And I feel like that's a luxury that brands today, especially launching D2C, don't have. You know, everybody wants to accelerate from the get. So when you did bring on funding, what was it about? Well, in full transparency, we hadn't really created our executive team. Linda and I were doing a lot, way too many things that we probably shouldn't have been doing, and we stretched it far to get to that point. We wanted to hold until we got to a certain size, and that's something I really recommend to anybody out there who's building a brand, and work with the banks and wherever you can to get funding before going to raise capital, unless unless it's something that you absolutely need from the get-go. And today, yes, it's a lot harder to do it without. But as far as why we had to do it, you just get to a point where you can't keep up with what's happening. We had so many out-of-stock situations, which is cool for a period of time because it will make people want the product, but eventually it's not a great place to be. And Sephora is not happy when you're out of stock. Nobody's happy. You can lose so much business. I actually remember one month with our mascara, I think we lost nearly $100,000 just because we were out of stock. That's a painful pill to swallow. So the funding is there to ensure that we have the team to support the growth. I really believe it's about the team. And the bigger this company gets and the longer that I've been doing it, it is about who you surround yourself with to make it happen because you cannot make all those decisions on your own. And Linda and I have really divided down the middle. Um, She is handling more sales and ops and I'm more creative PD and marketing, of which I also would recommend that to anybody. Like Realize what you're good at doing and what people are better at doing than you and be able to start separating from it. And that is imperative to growth. And now that we have that capital, we can support those positions. So why the raise in 2018 and then another one quickly thereafter oh, why in 2020? So quickly? Yeah. We only raised a small amount of money in 2018 and knew that the runway for that funding would probably last us 12 to 18 months. And it lasted us roughly 12. And you don't, you can't plan. You, you try your best to plan, but you don't know necessarily what's coming up when you're growing. And uh, yeah, I guess six months after we closed, we decided to start speaking to people again. And Silas was part of the Series B as well as um, Sandbridge Capital. We brought them in. What is this round going to accelerate? Everything that we've wanted to do. I think the last year was getting organized with building out the team, which is still happening. It's a lot of people to hire at once, and it takes time for everybody to figure out how to work together. For the capital itself, uh, sampling, I really believe that's that's an Estee Lauder move. You know, she would walk around and give people samples of her product. I still think being able to get product into people's hands so they can try it is important, especially because we are very much a product first company. Marketing is second, and it's something that I would like to do more of as we've never really done much. I just stepped away from an influencer breakfast where we had a bus wrapped in our new product, which was exciting to see and totally wild. Just have never done anything like that. He'll be driving around New York City for the next couple months. Please wave. Take a pic. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sasha, what do you think about what is happening, though, in the larger landscape? You know, a lot of other clean color brands have also raised in the last few months. You know, Lawless has, um, and they're obviously going after a different set of the market or a different capture of the customer. But, you know, why do you think all of a sudden investors are interested in this segment? This category, the clean category, as they're calling it now, is on ex- an extreme growth pattern. It's clear that it's the category that is one of the fastest categories in Sephora, um, if not the market in general. And because everybody's growing so fast, they need capital. It, it's, I think it's just... Fundamental economics. It's, yeah, it's the logistics. It's the logistics. And, and again, the consumer is ready. We saw skin. It's like a domino. If you were to put three dominoes there, you say skin, hair, the next domino is color. Do you feel like that there's a winner takes all in color like there has been in skin? You know, I don't imagine maybe, you know, there's going to be these giant exits like there were this last year with two of the biggest skincare brands. Do you think that's going to happen in color as well? I think it's a little ways away for color. I think that there we have we still have to build that base with our customer. I don't think that it's impossible to have a huge exit. I do think some of those bigger exits that have happened, not even just in clean, but in some other larger brands that have been bought up by strategics in the last couple of years, I don't know if they're going to be as big as that. Because even recently, we've been seeing that some of that hasn't been as successful as it was intended to be. So, um, yeah, I do think there's definitely a possibility. And I do think that without these other players in the space, it wouldn't be a category. So there's definitely a few key players that are in the space driving that forward. And there are many new brands in color. So many. I'm seeing new ones every day, which is exciting. And also will hopefully keep driving that category forward and bringing that customer to this category. You've told me before, Sasha, that, you know, nowadays labs or have like contract manufacturers who create these these ingredients and formulas that you never even saw, you know, eight years ago. But now, like, the chemists and the labs are really prepared for it. Is that right? They are. It's interesting. You know, all of our formulas, most of them are started from zero. So we'll go there with an idea and a brief and build it from scratch. And we have to start protecting those because the labs are now coming to us with full collections on clean. A lot of labs that actually wouldn't speak to me a few years ago are coming to us with these collections and saying, hey, look what we have. And it's making it a lot easier for people to enter the market. And that's wonderful because it's growing the category. I just also hope that there will still be authenticity and all the new brands that are jumping on board as it is a really hot category. And I feel like everybody wants to get into it now. How do you think it's affecting legacy players and their reformulations or their um, takes on, you know, standing in Sephora and you're like, okay, this is the clean color cosmetics, but what does that say about, you know, everything else in the aisle? I can't necessarily speak on behalf of the other brands, but I do think whatever type of brand you are, you have to stay true to your voice. Uh, Sephora is, you know, looking to implement different policies for ingredients, depending on what tier or category you're in. And I believe that that's a great way to streamline everything in the industry. Uh, yet I, I do think it's important that each brand stays true to their voice. And if their customers are loyal, they shouldn't have anything to worry about in that regard. So how are you kind of amplifying that productivity in Sephora? I know you have big plans right now, including a rebrand, more space in stores, more product. Tell us about it all. We've got a bus. 
<laughs> well, then there you go. We're done. <laughs> I know. We're, we're done. Everybody hop on the bus. No, it's... um. It is. It is. It's actually just marketing that has to happen there and sampling and making sure that there's a team in store to help support the bays and bringing awareness. I actually think that we're not well known and that we're really small still. And we have a lot of brand awareness to build. Most of us, most color brands at this point have a lot of brand awareness to build. So whether that be on a billboard, a wild posting, Instagram ads, we have to do it all. And we have to be able to figure out uh, where we can strike our audience in a way that they can remember us and hopefully have some type of connection. How do you feel about that marketing piece? Because, you know, D2C brands who are in the space right now are really using retailers as their marketing vehicle, you know, becoming omni-channel. And then on the flip, you know, customer acquisition costs are more expensive than ever on Facebook and Instagram and influencers are expensive. So where do you decide where to spend and what's actually going to either convert or engage with, you know, these customers that may not know you? Well, we didn't have money to spend until our capital raised, so that was very important to start testing. And we did a lot of testing last year to see what our customer responded to, who she responded to, and what she was looking for. And through that, we were able to create certain ads that are more authentic and that reach a wider audience and drive her either to the stores or to our website. But to me, it's a win-win if you're driving them to the stores or your website. Yes, there's a larger margin on your website, but for Sephora, as an example, they're such a brand builder. Some of those brands that you mentioned earlier, many of them um, were exclusive or nearly exclusive with them. And I believe they wouldn't be where they are today if they didn't have that support from a large retailer to drive it. For D2C, you need much more capital to be able to advertise a lot. Is that where you're spending your most recent round on? No. There's a chunk that's allocated towards it, but I think because we are really still quite retailer-based, and our website, it's important to us and we do well, but with the retailers that we have, we need to create awareness in all areas. And there are brands that are only doing it online, and they're being very successful, but they have to make sure that that customer will come back and repurchase with them online. And I think that's challenging to do. If you're not available in a store, especially in color, how would that customer have the experience? You know, my, th- my thoughts are that in the future, retail stores will be more like showrooms where maybe you won't necessarily be sh- shopping and purchasing in store, but you'll be able to go and view and see these products as I believe that's such an important piece to make up. What do you think about the experiential piece? Because, you you know, speaking of the showroom example and then obviously the bus, you know, that may not be about actually purchasing the product on a bus, but, you know, it gets people it gets people thinking about Ilya and it gets people in that mindset. So is it about for you, you know, top of the funnel, bottom of the funnel? Is it all of the above? It is all the above. Um, I think that there's I do think there's a lot of low hanging fruit, so to speak, that we can we can start picking away at. Yet, at this time, having things be visible in an environment and in print, it's almost um, nostalgic in some ways because everybody's so attached to everything digitally and that's where everybody's experiencing. I think if someone were to experience an ad digitally and then walk outside and see a billboard um, in L.A. and then maybe see a wild posting in New York if they were traveling there the next week, it creates that recognition 
and then perhaps they walk into a Sephora and see us physically in store. There's a recognition there that starts to happen in different environments, which I think is really powerful and believe D2C brands are doing that in their own ways as well, because physically in person, nothing really beats that. What are you thinking about as you go into the rest of this year? Is it more doors, more distribution, you know, with other retailers, perhaps more marketing, all of the above? All of the above. Our distribution is definitely more focused and we are building a relationship with Sephora, which is an amazing partnership. And we're very excited to be a part of their clean initiative. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there's a lot of opportunity to build brand awareness. And that to me is what is ultimately very important as we expand our doors in Sephora. How many doors are you guys in right now? Oh, I believe it's roughly 85 with one bays, and then we will be launching additional one bays and two bays next week, uh, bringing us close to 200 for bays. And then with the clean animation that's coming up, that's also launching next week, will be available in all doors with a couple dozen SKUs. How do you feel about their um, strip mall concept, which is more focused on suburbia? How do you think that will help with Ilya's awareness? I really believe that our customer is 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 in the suburbs. I think that she's the millennial and her mom. And I do believe that getting that brand awareness out there will be really helpful. And their initiative to do that is clear and they have another competitor there, you know, who they're they're gonna be rivaling against. Um, yet yeah, at this time I believe being able to reach a wider audience and demographic in clean is what will really push color to the next level, as I think that customer is now ready everywhere. Do you feel like you're going to have to position yourselves a little bit differently? Like, you know, you really talked about the beginning of this conversation, that wash and go kind of pigment of color girl, which arguably could be a little bit younger. Do you think that as you penetrate those um, suburbs that those women are going to want more coverage or more products that are, you know, longer lasting, performance packed, compete with like the Estee Lauders of the world? I think that, again, she is ready for something different, whereby the performance is similar. If they are looking for full coverage, there are other brands in the clean category that can provide that. If they're looking for lighter wash of color, you know, we're one brand that can provide that as well as a few others. I I believe now that the category has tiered itself to be able to offer different options to cater to the customer's needs. And... I know that she wants it there because we get customer inquiries all the time. I, you know, you're not available anywhere close to me. The closest Sephora is 100 miles away. They are asking and they are looking. What is important is to ensure that there is brand awareness around it and the right support to educate about the product. Without that, I think it's very easy to fail. And what about the rebrand? What was the point of that or why are you doing it? There's a lot of reasons. The brand was designed 10 years ago, and it was relevant to the times. And like a great coat or pair of boots, you get to a point where you think, you know, I think I really think I need to update this. And a couple years ago, I started to feel it. I also felt like our logo was thin, and that was stylish back in 2008, 2009. But I wanted something more modern and cleaner. The third point around that is sustainability. The packaging has metalized effects to it, which 
is not great for the environment. So I think a lot of the times when people are talking about sustainable packaging, they're thinking about just the material. But what they're not thinking about is the process that has to happen with the decoration. So we removed a critical step there and took out that metallization to streamline it and make it just more simplistic. Do you think that's more relevant and more in line with what Clean. What happened with clean and like now what's happening with sustainability? I think that sustainability is going to scream so much louder than clean. I actually think that sustainability will be screaming it not just in this category of beauty, but I think in nearly every industry. There is a lot of noise around it and it's not something that's going to go away. In our category for beauty, it's so challenging because you need the products to be able to be stable in sometimes plastic sometimes you can use glass usually there's yeah and there's pumps and little mechanisms and even if something's recyclable a lot of the times it won't get recycled because it's too small so they don't take it we have an initiative with TerraCycle whereby you can send back five of your products from us or another beauty brand each month we will send you a complimentary shipping label and we will responsibly dispose of those I really wish everybody would do this, as well as the retailers. As we have to find ways to use more sustainable materials, we also have to find ways to make sure it doesn't end up in a landfill. Because it's really cool if it's made of post-consumer recycled material, but if it's just going back into the landfill, what's the point? Do you think the beauty industry is getting more serious about that from the retailer perspective? Yes. And I, I know that for a fact after having been to a brand summit a couple weeks ago, there is a real call out to brands to say, hey... You need to start thinking about this. And it has to go all the way. It's not just for packaging. Think about the bays and the way that displays are presented physically in store. We've also started working with certain compostable resins, which we're trying to make sure that if they wipe down or clean them in store, they don't start biodegrading. But this is something that will be huge in the next couple of years. Sasha, we talked about a lot today, you know, and you have a lot going on. So when you think about forecasting sales for the end of 2020, what are you thinking? For 2020, we are looking to have an awesome year. And if anything, at a minimum, we will double from where we were last year. Perfect. Thank you so much, Sasha. It was great having you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, that means if you haven't subscribed, please hit that button.